But you are family, and thank you so much for being here and being with us over these last three weeks. And it is my privilege to now bring God's word to bear for you one final time before you leave and for our church this morning. So let's turn in our Bible, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. This morning we are starting a new series called Unmissable Church. It's a series that has been based on this book that is uncannily entitled Unmissable Church. It's an excellent book written by Richard Sweatman and Anthony Barraclough, who are two Australian pastors. And when we read this as a pastoral team, it was just one of those moments where we really felt the Lord speaking to us. It was a timely word, I think, and it really speaks into our culture, and particularly here for instance, Australia and Sydney. I think this book is a word in season for us. And so I'm not just going to be preaching literally through the book word for word, but we are going to take themes and topics that it talks about that we really want to bring to bear over the next four weeks on us as a local church. And so we're going to start right here in Ephesians chapter 2 from verses 19 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, as we once again gather around your word, I pray that we would hear your voice this morning. Lord, you have gathered us together afresh as your people so that you can speak to us. So, Lord, would we hear your voice? Would you encounter us as you've encountered us in our praises? Would you encounter us through the preaching of your word? Lord, would you bless the preaching of your holy word? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, a couple of months ago now, Emma and I were driving along in our van, in our black IMAX, and we pulled up at a pedestrian crossing. We pulled up at a pedestrian crossing because somebody was crossing the road. And so we're chatting away. This person crosses the road. They have completed the crossing of the road, at which point I set off at quite a pace, at which point my wife goes, ah! And I also then go, in response to her doing that, a smash on the anchors. You know, we had in our car in that moment, one of those moments where your car sort of swaying a bit because you've gone for it. And then you're like, whoa, whoa. It was one of those moments. And then I noticed the reason for the scream. There was a small elderly Indian lady also crossing the pedestrian crossing. But I couldn't see her. Because in the van, there's this blind spot, which is like the corner of the windscreen that you can't see past. And I just couldn't see it. There was this blind spot where she was crossing the road and I just hadn't seen. And I came away from that moment thinking, I am just so grateful for my wife. I'm so grateful that she screamed and alerted me to the reality of this blind spot. Otherwise, I would have been in prison right now because I would have run this poor lady right over. She would have been flat Stanley for the rest of her days. I would have finished her off. You know, I'm thankful for the Lord that my wife screamed and alerted me to the reality of a blind spot in my life. 
And as we set off on this new series together, it's my desire this morning to do exactly the same thing for each of us. Namely, to alert each one of us to what I believe is a Christian blind spot, potentially even in our lives. And it's this. This is the blind spot. That in our vision for the church, I believe, as Christians, even as passionate Christians, we can so easily think of the church and behave towards the church as simply just an optional extra. Like a toe ball that we might get on the car. Or blacked out windows. You know, it's not the car. The car's really important and there's a few other things in our life that we might like. Or like attending a cafe. Or maybe therapy that we just go to now and again. But we can pick it up, we can put it down all of our lives. I submit to you, I think that is a common and very important issue that we need to address and think about. Because I do think it is a Christian blind spot today. You see, things were very different from the way they are today, just some 50 to 70 years ago. 50 to 70 years ago, the world was a different place, was it not? Just after the Second World War, the world was very different here in Sydney. It was very different, but the world has changed a lot. We're so much more wealthy now than we've ever been before. Technology is a bigger deal than it's ever been before, and as it advances and moves forward, It can be hard to keep up with it. Travel. We can now travel more than we've ever been able to do in the history of mankind. Given technology advances, given wealth advances, given travel advances, we now have more choices than we've ever had before. And yet here's the reality. Over the last 50 to 70 years, an all-pervading change in Western society that has affected all of Western society is the rise of individualism. There's a wonderful book by Charles Taylor, a philosopher and academic, who in his book, A Secular Age, says we now live in the age that the most important thing in our lives is that we be true to ourselves. He calls it the age of authenticity that rose up after the Second World War. And the best thing about our lives now is ourselves. I need to do me, you need to do you. And whatever that means, I ain't been told by nobody what to do because I'm going to do me and you're going to do you. It's called the rise of individualism. It's all about secularity. And it's something that is the air we breathe to the point that I don't think we even notice it anymore. It was not like that in your parents' age group. For those of you the younger, in your grandparents' age group. It wasn't like that. And in the last 50 to 70 years, this rise of individualism has had a radical effect on the way people think of the local church. See, in the 50s and 60s and 70s in the Western world, a Sunday was the Lord's Day. And what that meant was you were at church literally most of the day. I was chatting to my mom and dad about this when I was back in the UK. And then I chatted to Emma's mom and dad about their experience. My parents were in the east of England and in Newcastle. Emma's parents were in London. And I said, what was a Sunday like for you in the 60s and the 70s? And they said, oh, it's very different. I said, tell me about it. And they said, well, what you'd do is you'd get up in the morning because you'd attend a church prayer meeting. And the whole church would be there. That was the expectation. You would attend a church prayer meeting. Then straight after the church prayer meeting, you'd have your service. Then in the afternoon, straight after lunch, you'd have Sunday school, which was for adults. So that you could learn doctrine and theology. And then you'd go home for dinner. And then you'd come back for the evening gospel service where you'd invite your friends. And that's what you did every week. 
The whole church would gather on the Lord's Day. That was the Lord's Day. Whether you're in Newcastle or in Spalding or in London, that's what you did. And if you study history in Australia, it is similar. People often went to church twice on a Sunday. They gave themselves to the Lord and pursuing the Lord on the Lord's Day. And yet nowadays, I say this to you and you're scratching your head as if, as if this is even possible. Because we live in a time that's so very different, don't we? It's very different from what it used to be. See, in 2017, the McCrindle Institute did some research And what they discovered after researching hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people is that for every three Australians that claim to be a Christian, only one of them actually goes to church. So out of every three people that say, I'm a Christian in Australia, only one of them goes to church. But it gets worse. Out of that one that only goes to church, on average, that one only goes to church once a month. So one in three Australians that claim to be a Christian go to church. And even then, on average, they only go once a month. That's the state of our country. That's where we're up to here in Australia. When people think about the local church, it was partly what triggered um, Anthony Barraclough, one of the authors of this book that we're basing this series on, to do some doctoral level research Um, On this very same issue, he did that between 2016 and 2018. And the way he did it is he wasn't just looking at Christians that might claim to be a Christian. He actually interviewed people that are really passionate about Jesus. So passionate Christians, people like you, people that are well in for the Lord, people that are like, hey, I'm all in. Jesus can have my life. And he actually interviewed them. And what he did is he did some research with passionate Christians and he asked them, to actually keep a log of how often they're at church. He asked them to do it over four weeks and then 12 weeks. And what he, this is what he discovered. Out of all these people over a four-week period and then a 12-week period, they self-reported how often they'd been at church. And they found that on average, they were there four out of every five weeks, 80% of the time. Well, you think, well, that's a big step up from the wider Australian culture, right? So that, this is encouraging, but here's the discouraging thing. He didn't just ask them to self-report. He asked their pastors behind the scenes to keep a check on what they were actually at. And so it went down from four in every five Sundays to only two in every three Sundays. So here's the reality. Even passionate Christians in Australia, that study was actually done in Sydney. Even passionate Christians in our city, in reality, are only at church 34 Sundays out of 52 Sunday. If they then serve, say, in kids' ministry once a month, that means they're only actually sitting in here 22 weeks out of 52 weeks. And the reasons right here in our city, right here in Sydney, the reasons that people gave for not actually coming were wide and varied. There was sickness and holidays, we understand that. But then there was tiredness and busyness, family activities, sports, including kids' sports. Needs not being met at church, so didn't want to come. No friendships at church. Shopping. Weather. Too hot, too cold, too wet. School functions. Working bee. Car club or sporting club outing, so want to be there. And then anyway, I'm not saved by church attendance, so I really don't have to go. 
So the average passionate Christian in Sydney goes to church two out of every three weeks. On the third week, they use one of these reasons why they're not going to come. Listen, church, here's my concern. This is a Christian blind spot. We feel as if we're here all the time. But statistically, we're not. Because we have so many other things going on in our lives. Things that have crept in. Things that my parents would have never committed to. Today in our generation, we commit to them all. Because Sunday isn't the Lord's day anymore. We don't think of church like we used to think of church. And in reality, local ecclesiology, the understanding of the church, has diminished greatly. Listen, as Christians, even as passionate Christians... We can so easily think of and behave towards the church as if it's just an optional extra. A cafe, a piece of therapy that we can pick up, put down, depending on how we feel. It's the rise of individualism. But I submit to you, the church is so much more than that. The church isn't just an optional extra. C.H. Spurgeon, the wonderful 18th century preacher, said it this way. He says, if I'd never joined a church till I'd found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it. For it would not have been a perfect church after I'd become a member of it. I appreciate the honesty. Still, and perfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to me. See, to Mr. Spurgeon, he understood the church. To him, it wasn't just an optional extra that he picked up and put down. That wasn't the way it was. He understood the church is the dearest place on earth because he studied his Bible and he understood what the Bible actually said about the church as he was passionate about the church. And so to him, it was the dearest place on earth and he wanted to teach his church accordingly. Listen, this morning that having alerted your attention, I trust, to this Christian blind spot. I want you to be aware of this blind spot. Your pastoral team want you to be aware of this blind spot. I believe God wants you to be aware of this blind spot. And in that same vein, I want to pull the curtain back this morning on what it is that makes the church the dearest place on earth. What makes it not just an optional extra, but actually the dearest place on earth? And I have five things that I want to look at this morning. Now, on good news, they're not long things. We're not going to be here all day. Didn't Austin do a message with seven things once? So that's the record. I mean, I'm nowhere near that. But I do have five things that I just want to spend a bit of time on. Um, Just briefly, because I want us to see as you put them all together, you realize the church is not just an optional extra. It's amazing before the Lord. When you examine what the Bible says about the church, it is something that I believe truly is unmissable. So what is it about the church that makes it the dearest place on earth? Well, here's the first thing. It's the reality that together we are a gathering. A gathering. See, one of the most beautiful things about the church is the reality that God not only saves individuals, He not only justifies people by his grace, he also joins people together. He doesn't just justify, he joins. In Ephesians chapter 1 then, right at the start of this letter that we're in this morning, in verses 3 to 6, this is what he says. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like he can't contain himself any longer. I've just got to tell you about him. Who has blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He just wants to brag about Christ and all that he's done. He wants to remind us, it's all him. Your great salvation, it's all him. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, it's all him. He chose you before the foundation of the earth. He died in your place. He gave you life and adopted you into his family. He has justified you by his grace and through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what we read about in Ephesians chapter 1. But then as we enter into Ephesians chapter 2, we discover that he not only justifies, he joins. And so we read in Ephesians 2 verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So then, no longer strangers, no longer aliens, no longer people that have nothing to do with each other. No, you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. See, by very basic definition of the church, and a headline basic definition of the church, is that the church is a gathering. That's what ecclesia means. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church. And it literally means gathering. So when it comes to the local church, it means gathering of believers. It's understanding that God has justified us by his grace, but he hasn't just sent us off as lone rangers. No, he justifies and then he joins to gather together on the Lord's day, to come together, to do life together. That's the way he's designed it to be. We see it all the way through the Bible. The very first gathering, the very first church, if you will, Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve being gathered by God himself so he can speak to them. It's an ecclesia. We see it in Exodus chapter 19, when God himself gathers his people at Mount Sinai so he can give them the law, so that he can give them his encouragement, so he can encounter them. We see it throughout the Old Testament, through the tabernacle and the temple, the gathering of God's people together to worship him and sacrifice him and to know him and hear from him. And then it's in the New Testament and through the finished work of Jesus Christ, that we see a new gathering taking place, namely the local church. God still himself justifying and joining and joining people together in the church. Ultimately then many churches scattered throughout the world where he will be present. And he calls his people to gather so they can worship him and know him and hear from him and pray to him and be with him. It's a gathering. That's why here at Sovereign Grace, we're not a big fan of online church. Why? There ain't no gathering. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. It's church by yourself. Church means gathering. You can't do that by yourself. We gather. We come together. We spend time together. It is a gathering of believers. You know, I think one of the most incredible realities biblically about this gathering an incredible spiritual reality, is that somehow all Christians from all time, from all over the world, are already joined, even now in the heavenly realms, in a gathering 
in the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. (laughs) It's staggering. Ephesians 2 verse 6 tells us about it. In Ephesians 2 verse 6 we read that God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, just think about that for a moment. God has, when you became a Christian, raised you up and seated you with him in the heavenly places. In a spiritual sense, even now, we are all gathered around the entire world in the heavenly realms, worshiping the Lord because we are found in Christ. Is there mystery to that? Oh yeah, (laughs) definitely. But is it happening? The Bible says, yes, it is happening. We are already found in Christ, people from every tribe and language and nation in the heavenly realms, seated with Christ before Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Isn't that incredible? That's the spiritual reality. But what is also an incredible reality is that each and every week as we gather, we get to be the local and visible manifestation right here of that heavenly reality. We get to gather We get to be a picture of something that has happened even now in the heavenly realms. As Ion pointed out this morning where he's thanking God for the way we're worshiping in a taste of heaven. It is literally a taste of heaven because it's like in the heavenly realms, that's already happening. We're all there, seated with Christ. Aren't you grateful then that the Lord has called you to be a part of this gathering? A gathering of believers. Not just sent out as lone rangers, but gathered together. Gathered together for his glory. And the gathering, well, it no doubt has a purpose. And we see that purpose as we continue reading on. Because the second reason why the church is the dearest place on earth is the reality that together we're a temple. We're not just a gathering, but we are indeed a temple. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 through 22 once again. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You know, for the early Christians and the early readers of this text, that would have been like a shake-ahead moment. What do you mean that we are the temple? Because for hundreds and hundreds of years, they had been operating very differently when it comes to understanding temple. See, in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where the people of God would go to meet with God. They would go to worship him. They would go to encounter him. They would go to make sacrifices to him. And for hundreds of years, that's the way it was. That's the way the temple worked. The people of God would gather as believers and come to the temple to worship his holy name. But then Jesus on the cross declares that things are changing up. And one of the expressions of that is when he says, it is finished. The temple curtain is torn in two, remember? It's ripped apart. It's symbolic now of how the temple is going to be real different now. No longer do we have the great high priest once a year going into the Holy of Holies. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, anybody can go in. 
You can go in and encounter God because he's washed you clean of your sin. He's justified you. He's adopted you. We can all approach the Lord. And this temple that he's now building is no longer going to be built with physical stones. It's going to be built with living stones. People who he's putting together in local churches. And what we discover in Ephesians 2, it's as he puts us together that he himself will dwell in you. My friends, that's staggering. He's building together Sovereign Grace Church Warunga as a temple. You try being a temple by yourself. A temple takes many bricks. But as he puts us together, he wants to inhabit us. That's why in Matthew 18, verse 20, we have some of the most incredible words in Scripture. He says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. It's symbolic, once again, of this temple. And it's symbolic, once again, that listen, when you gather as God's people, he's just with us in a different way. It's different. Donald Whitney, in his excellent book, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church, comments on this. He says, God will manifest his presence to you in congregational worship in ways that you can never know, even in the most glorious secret worship. That's because you're not only a temple of God as an individual, but as the Bible says, and far more often, it is Christians collectively that are God's temple. For God manifests his presence in different ways to the living stones of his temple when they are gathered than he does to them when they are apart. That's so true. You know, as a pastor, I've been a pastor for 23 years. One of the most disappointing things is when God really presences himself. It can happen through a message. It can happen through um, worship. It can happen through encouragement. You never know when things are going to happen. And then you look around and you realize half of the people are missing. You can't, you can't get it back. God just presences himself differently when the stones are gathered than he does when we are by our what is it then that makes the church the dearest place on earth well it's the fact that together we're a gathering and together we're a temple being built by stones from all different colors and backgrounds and understandings and built into a dwelling place for the Lord and then there's the reality number three the reality that together we're a family we are brothers and sisters a family that's not just a sentimental reality It is a biblical reality. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Isn't that beautiful? When you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when he called your name and you were born again to a living hope, He gave the right to become children of God. He, in that moment, became your father. Where he guarantees to watch over your coming and your going. He hems you in both behind and before. And one of the ways he expresses his care to you is by building you into a family of brothers and sisters, of aunties and uncles, of mums and dads. Where are they? Well, look around. They're here. See, sometimes we can say, hey, bro. I just think of it as like a throwaway comment. It's actually true. They are your brother. They are your sister. 
joined by the blood of Christ. Reuben Welsh says it this way. He says, of course we believe in the total adequacy of Jesus Christ to meet the total need of the total person. But we must also remember this. He saves into the context of the community of faith. And so it isn't Jesus and me, but Jesus and we. See, in the age of individualism, we lose sight of that. But biblically defined, it's never been about Jesus and me. It's been about Jesus and we, a gathering of believers, a temple that he's pulling together. Indeed, a family. Why? Because we are brothers and sisters. That's why we're encouraged and commanded in Romans 12 verse 10 to love one another with a brotherly affection. Why? Because you are family. They are your brother. They are your sister. So give yourselves to them like Why Sunday, we keep talking about it, is one of the best days of the week. Why? Because it's the family reunion every day of the week. I'm aware that the number of you are in families where you have family night every week. That's wonderful. This is family morning every Sunday of the week. It's the family gathering, the family coming together around God's word, around worship, around preaching, so that we may be addressed by God himself. The church, it's a family. No wonder that Mr. Spurgeon called it the dearest place on earth to him because he knew these are my brothers and my sisters. I'm aware that so many of you are immigrants. So many of you have come from foreign seas. Listen, welcome to family. Because it's right here. It's right here in this room. And we need each other, don't we? When we are sad and when we are disappointed, we need Jesus. But more often than not, we need somebody to be Jesus to us, don't we? We need somebody to come alongside us and encourage us and pray with us. Sometimes just sit with us and don't even say too much. It's just nice to be around somebody. When we're tired and when we're distracted, we we need Jesus. But we also need somebody to come and be Jesus to us, to help us see blind spots in our lives and to spur us on. Hey, listen, don't give up. Keep running. It'll be worth it. Even now, the cloud of witnesses are cheering you on. Don't give up. And when in our lives we are confused and unsure, we need Jesus. We need his word. But more often than not, we need somebody to be Jesus to us, don't we? Who can take this word and model in their lives what it even means to live for him. We need examples. We need people to look up to. People that we can see in their lives. I want to be like that. I want to love Jesus like that. I want a marriage like that. I want to live the single years like that. I want to be a parent like that. Whatever it is, we need people. So the Lord says, I know that. So I'm not just going to justify you. I'm going to join you. I'm going to put you with a family. See, the church family is where we learn to love God and others. The church family is where we are strengthened and transformed by the truth of his word. And it's the church family where we're taught to pray and to worship and to serve and to follow the Lord Jesus with all our heart, mind and strength. It's the family where we learn those things. And it's the family where we see those things in others and think, I want to live like that. How did you do that? Help me. As my brother or my sister, help me. That is family life. How kind of the Lord to give us that, don't you think? The Lord could have just said, hey, I'm going to save you. And guess what? I'm going to give you the internet. You should be good to go. But he didn't. 
He justifies us and then he joins us and says, hey, look around. They are your brothers and sisters now. Treat them with a brotherly affection because they are indeed your family. And yet this family isn't just designed by God to therefore, okay, well, let's just hunker down and let's just care for one another because that's all we're going to do, right? And when we're a gathering of believers and we're a temple and we're a family, just hunker down. No, this family has been sent on mission by Jesus, hasn't it? We've been sent to go and make disciples of all nations. We've been sent to go and tell people about him. We're called to be a, a city on a hill. And that's the fourth thing that I think makes the church such an incredible reality. It's the reality that together we are a body. We're a body. We're not just a family. We're a body on mission for Jesus. And we're not just any body. We are the body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, we read about what the Father has done for the Son. And this is what we read. It says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, listen, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is the church? The church is the body of Christ, the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. Listen, one of the most profound realities, I think, about the local church is the reality that we are a local, living, breathing demonstration of the very body of Jesus Christ himself. How are people in Hornsbyshire, in Warunga, in the hills, how are they to see Jesus Christ? Guess what? Example one, Ephesians one, it's in you. That's how they're going to see Christ. They're going to see Christ through you, through your lives, through your gifts, through your relationships, through your love for one another. As you give yourselves to one another in the context of this body, as you stand side by side for the gospel and strive forward for the sake of the gospel using your gifts and abilities that these communities around will look on and go, what's that? And what they are actually seeing is a visible manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Where are people to see Jesus in our area? Right here. The local church is a visible, tangible, real world expression of the body of Christ. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know we all, each and every one of us, have an important part to play in this body. That's why we read in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He has given you as a member of Sovereign Grace Church a gift, a gift and ability. And it is a gift and ability given by him. Why? So you can play it in different contexts in the local church so the church can be built. Listen, your gifts weren't primarily given by God so you could earn money. It's a helpful extra. But that was not the primary reason why I gave you those gifts. The primary reason why I gave you those gifts is so you can play a part in the family, build the body up so that people can see Christ. That's why he gifted you that way. That's why he called you in the way he did. That's why he justified you and joined you so that ultimately his name may be glorified in our community by seeing you function in the context of the local church. Listen, once again, we need each other, don't we? See, maybe for some of you, maybe you're a finger for Jesus. I love fingers. I have 10 of them. You know, maybe you think, you know, that's my role. I'm a finger. Well, fingers can do a lot of things, can't they? They can scratch. 
It's awesome. They can like point. They can poke. They can do a lot of things. They can hold things. But if they ain't attached to a hand and an arm and a body, they ain't do nothing. You're just a finger for Jesus. Maybe you're a foot. I love feet. I have two of them. It's how I move forward in my life. It's how we all do. But if that foot said, hey, I, I don't, I'm not really into this. I'm just, yeah, I love the church, but I got this on next week and then this on the week after and this on the week after. You're like, well, how are we going to move? Because that's the part God's called you to play. And you're just too busy with other things. The Lord has called us together. And then he says, hey, I want to use your gifts and abilities. Because that's how this body will go forward. And that's how people, by my grace and for my glory, will actually see me. My friends, you've been called to play a part in the body. And quite frankly, our body ain't looking the same without you. We need you. And take a look around. All the people around you, you need them as well. Because they have gifts you don't. They have abilities you don't. They have parts to play that you don't. We need each other. You know, the church, it can be so easy to see it as an optional extra, but when you start to examine it biblically, you realize the church is amazing. The church is a gathering. The church is a temple. It's a, it's a family and a body called by God to go on mission for Christ. And the fifth thing that I think is so amazing about the church, just to close, is the reality that together we're a bride. The bride of Christ. See, to me, this is the most staggering metaphor in Scripture of all. Because it tells us so much about how Jesus feels about the church. This is what we read in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 25. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then he says this to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's staggering. How does he feel about the church? Well, he, he gave his life up for her. He loves his bride with all his heart. He gave his life up for her. You know, one of the privileges of pastoral ministries, you go to a lot of weddings. And whenever we go to a wedding, we're all similar, aren't we? We wait for the arrival of the bride and the bride starts to walk down the aisle and each and every one of us, what do we do? We all look at the bride. But then having looked at the bride for some time, we now all look at the groom. Because <laughs> we want to see his face. We want to see how he's reacting, how he's processing this beautiful woman walking towards him. And you know what? What you see in that groom's face in that moment is love and passion. More often than not, they're weeping, are they not? Because they feel like the luckiest man alive. It was on the April the 15th in the year 2000 that I had the privilege of being that man as Emma Davis, as was, walked towards me. I felt like the happiest man on the planet. 
and 23 years on, my affections and feelings have not changed. I am still the happiest man on the planet, being married to Emma, Louise, Davis, now Taylor. You can look in that groom's face in that moment and see his passionate love for his bride. But I want to encourage you as a local church, that is just a dim reflection of how Jesus feels about his bride, the local church. A dim reflection. John Stott in his wonderful Ephesians commentary says it this way. He says, what stands out in Paul's development of this theme of the bride is the sacrificial steadfastness of the heavenly bridegroom's covenant love for her. He chose her from eternity past. He set his affections upon her. And then buying her back from sin, he gently sanctifies and cleanses her, preparing her for himself. His love for his bride is not flighty. It's not given a whim. For it is zealous and it is unchanging. How does Jesus feel about his bride? How does Jesus feel about the church? How does Jesus feel about Sovereign Grace Church, Warunga? He loves her passionately. He laid his life down for her. And his love for her is not flighty. It's not given to him. No, it is zealous and it is unchanging. My friends, as his people then that are called to be conformed to his image, as his people are called to be imitators of him, If he loves the church that much, then who are we to think any less of her? If he was willing to lay his life down for her in passion and love because this is my bride, then if we're called to imitate him, then who are we to say, oh, I'm okay, thanks, been busy this week. Praise God he didn't do that. For his love for his bride is not flighty and is not given to whim. It is zealous and it is unchanging. You know, the church, when you allow the Bible to speak for itself, you realize the church really is the dearest place on earth. It's a gathering that God is pulling together from different tribes and language and nations, building us together into a temple for him. It's a family where he says, hey, listen, you're not going to be able to do this by yourself. I want you to come together. You will need them and they will need you. Come together as a family because you're a body with different gifts and abilities. Oh, and guess what? I love you with all my heart, which is why I laid my life down for you and will give myself to cleansing you and sanctifying you because you are my bride. The church is a staggeringly beautiful place. Once again, John Stott in his Ephesians commentary, this is how he concludes his commentary. And having reviewed all the different facets of what the church really is. He says, If the church, therefore, is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, then it must surely also be central to our lives. For how can we take so lightly what God takes so seriously? And how dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? You know, I was 22 years old when I heard that quoted for the first time and I remember even then it stood out to me like a bell going off in my heart I thought you know what if I'm going to give my life away to something I want to give my life away to something that Jesus is doing what is he doing he's building his church that's what he's doing he's building his bride 
22 years old, I realized then I don't want to allow the church to be pushed to the circumference of my life when God has placed at the center. I was 22 years old. Now, 25 years on from that, I think we need to hear that commentary even more than we ever did when I was 22. Because the world is a different place. We're far more individualistic than we were all those years ago in my life. And for all of us here, we live in a world and a country and a city that is eagerly seeking to push to the circumference what God has actually placed at the center. My friends, the church, the local church, was never designed by God to be like an optional extra. A cafe that we attend now and again. A therapy. Oh, I just don't need it right now. I like some type of optional extra on our car. It wasn't designed by God to be that. And I think when we think of it like that, what I submit to you we are succumbing to is a Christian blind spot. I don't want us to be blind to that. Your pastoral team doesn't want you to be blind to that. Most of all, God doesn't want you to be blind to that because the church really is the dearest place on earth. And so I want to encourage you, my friends. Do all you can then to keep at the center what God has placed at the center, namely the local church. It's his bride which he gave his life for. It's his bride that he loves with a passion and unchanging reality. May we be like him. May we imitate him. And may the church be the dearest place on earth for us. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your care this morning. And I thank you that through this book and through a weaving together of events, we are now engaging with the reality that the local church has an optional extra. It's a blind spot in our, reality, in our lives. It's a blind spot in our thinking. It's a blind spot in our city. Lord, I pray that over the next four weeks, we may be washed with your word in a way that helps us to understand the church is the dearest place on earth. And why would we ever want to miss it? Lord, thank you that you didn't just justify us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for giving us a body. Thank you for giving us a family. Thank you for giving us a place and a temple and a gathering. And thank you for laying your lives down for us, Lord. You are worthy of all of our praises, all our attention. So Lord, would you receive all the glory you deserve. In Jesus' name.